this morning, we're looking at the first Sunday of Passion Week, uh, traditionally called Palm Sunday. So turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. Mark, chapter 11. Uh, here Jesus is spending the final days of his life on earth, getting ready to enter Jerusalem for the last time, and tells one of his disciples to go and get a colt or a, a donkey that's tied up and bring it to him. And Mark 11 verse 3 picks up the story He says, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Then you say that the Lord has need of him. And he will send it back immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and untied it. And some of those standing there said, what are you doing? Untying the colt. And they said, well, Jesus had said, and they let them go, and they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road and spread leafy branches in front of him. This is where we get the idea of uh, Palm Sunday. They took these branches um, and palm leaves and put in front of the donkey. It's sort of our, it'd be what we would call like a red carpet treatment for some VIP comes into town, so you roll out the red carpet for him. And this is what they're doing for Jesus. Uh, So it's why it's called Palm Sunday, because it's the time when he walked in. And by the way, um, some of our uh, churches, the more liturgical churches, they will take palm branches that they used the year before and burned them and then take the ashes of the palm branches or palm leaves and they use it the following year for what we call Ash Wednesday. Uh, Sometimes you'll see people with the little ash, the darkened forehead, and uh, a lot of times that's from the palm leaves that were burned and kept from the previous year. So they throw these palm branches and leaves in front of the donkey as Jesus rides into town. Mark 11, 9. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And then he entered Jerusalem. Um, one man, Marcus Borg is his name, uh, makes the interesting analogy. He says, this is festival week in Jerusalem, Passover week in Jerusalem during this time. Passover is actually on Friday. That's when they kill the lambs, uh, that they remember the feast day of when they came out of Egypt and the lamb was slain, blood put on the door. Well, this is Passover week, and they commemorate their Egyptian liberty. What we call Good Friday is Passover, actually, on the Jewish calendar. Uh, So that Jesus died on the same day the lambs were slain. 
But as Jesus comes in, this festive week, Rome would often send a battalion of soldiers during festival weeks in Jerusalem because it was very volatile. And Marcus Borg says that it's, it's very probable that as Jesus is coming in on this donkey with his disciples and other friends saying, blessed be the kingdom of David that is coming, that on the other end of Jerusalem, on the west side coming from Caesarea, because Jesus is coming down from Mount, Olive, the, uh, Mount of Olives, and so he would go in the eastern gate. But from Caesarea, the western side would be coming the Roman soldiers for the festives, festive week. And, and what a different kind of culture is heading for a clash. On the one hand, you have raw power and authority and, and horses that are outfitted with their armor and flashing steel and the smell of leather and the curious onlookers and the plumes on those Roman helmets and the eagle at the top of the standards of the Romans as they would march in with suspicious glances to the crowds that around them. Whereas on the other end, on the eastern side, you had Jesus riding on a donkey coming into town with these 12 nervous disciples. And here is the clash of cultures. And this is a crucial week in the life of Israel. Which kingdom and power will they follow? And in, in this little narrative that we've read, you find this important moment. Bible students call it Holy Week. It is the Sunday before the crucifixion on Friday, we call it good, which we call Good Friday. It is the Sunday before the Sunday, the first day of the week on which Jesus is resurrected. And it is the day predicted by Zechariah chapter 9 in which he said, how will you know who your king is when he arrives? He'll come on the foal of a donkey, Zechariah 9.9. And there's a lot of excitement that has begun to build. Um, in the chronology of the events, the day before, on a Saturday, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. This is because he came through Bethany, where Lazarus had been buried, and he raised Lazarus, and so his history calls it Lazarus Saturday. So here's, the, here's Jesus coming into Jerusalem in Passover week when the crowds are, are teeming and growing He's, the word is spread that Lazarus has been raised from the dead. And Jesus, according to Luke's uh, passage, when he tells this same story that Mark tells, he says that Jesus precedes it by telling a story about the kingdom of God and how he brought his enemies in front of him for judgment. 
And so the disciples are like almost giddy with excitement. And it says in Mark 10, the previous chapter of Mark 11, it says that the James and John came up to Jesus and kind of quietly said, uh, Jesus, you're about to come into your kingdom here. You're about to hit the lottery. Everything's going good. Uh, would you let us sit on each side of your throne in our own thrones? So they are expecting incredible things. But there's some things about this first Sunday, this Passion Sunday, Palm Sunday, that teach us about our faith and teach us about Jesus Christ. And it's, I want us to look at them here this morning. Uh, the first point I would simply make is this teaches that Jesus is the Lord. In fact, when you look at chapter 11, in verse 3, it says, when he tells them to go get this uh, donkey that, to ride in on, it says in verse 3, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. His lordship over the disciples, his lordship over the animals, his lordship over the circumstances, just tell them the Lord's asked for it. Oh, the Lord, okay. He's the Lord. What If the Lord asks for it, the Lord gets it. And so they, they released it to the Lord. But there's something else here as he enters into this this main gate into the temple. Um, and as I, I mentioned, the, the Gospels have him coming down from the Mount of Olives, which would be a straight shot into the eastern side of the city. And there is a prophecy that I have read this, and I never really understood it till this week. Uh, pull up that prophecy from Ezekiel 44. This is an amazing statement. It says, uh, this angel is showing Ezekiel around the city of Jerusalem. He says, the man brought me back, or the angel brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, the one facing east, and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, this gate is to remain shut. It must not be opened. No one may enter through it. It is to remain shut because the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered through it. Now, what, what the angel says to Ezekiel here is he shows him this future picture of the city. And he says, this eastern gate has been walled up, it's been bricked off, and it's to be permanently so, and the reason is because the Lord went through it, and I don't want it treated like a common access point into a city. Now, uh, when you go over today, most of you have heard me talk about 70 AD, and you know the city was destroyed and all the walls and all the gates, and there wasn't any gate to do anything with. But in 1500, the city began to be rebuilt and the walls around it were rebuilt by a, a Muslim Turkish man named Suleiman. 
This, this was in 1517. He commanded the city's ancient walls to be rebuilt, and in the midst of this, for some unknown reason, he ordered the eastern gate to be sealed up with stones. Pull that picture up. Let me show This is modern-day Jerusalem. If you go over to Jerusalem, for 500 years, it's been sealed up and closed off. There are eight entrances to the city of Jerusalem, but the, seat, the gate, which is the eastern side, coming down from the Mount of Olives, which Jesus would have entered, is the only one of those eight that has been walled up, sealed off. And you wonder, why in the world? Because there, you couldn't have sealed it up or shut it up for 1,500 years because it was torn down. But once they rebuilt it, that very day, that very time, they sealed up the entrance. And no one has entered that gate for over 500 years. That, I think that's a remarkable prophecy in the Old Testament and confirms the lordship of Jesus. Because remember what Ezekiel said? I want you to shut this gate. It must not be opened. Ezekiel, I'm going to show you one of the confirmations of the Lord's entrance is that the gate through which he enters, it will be sealed off because it's not a common access point. It is now sacred from this day on. When he enters, we're going to close it off for everybody else to enter. Do we have, uh, give me the next one. This is the same one from a distance. And is there one more? Is that it? Is that all? That's all. All right, who stole my third picture? That's what I want to know. So, remember what he said. No one may enter through it. It is to remain shut because the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered through it. You know, there are a lot of evidences for Christianity if people looked for them. But today, it's a society in which they're looking for evidences of, of unbelief. But if you want faith, there's evidences all around. History's full of it. But the first thing that I would say to you here is we, as we watch Jesus uh, ride this donkey into the eastern gate and the eastern section of Jerusalem is the thing that leaps out is this is the Lord. This is the Lord who is coming to town. But here's a second one. <clears throat> and I would say that we would learn that Jesus is not only the Lord, but Jesus is the King. Because look at what it says in verse 9 and 10. And those who went before, verse 9, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, quoting from Psalm 118. And blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Jesus is seen here as the king that is coming. Now let me say a word about this. In the Old Testament, when he talks about the kingdom of God, it means the kingdom over which David and Solomon ruled. 
Um, in First Chronicles 29 and 23, it says Solomon sat on the throne <clears throat> of the Lord as king in the place of his father David. See, David, his father, and Solomon, the son, sat and ruled in a kingdom which we, looked like an earthly kingdom, but it was actually God's rule. Why was it God's rule? Because they gave it to him. They turned their kingdom over to, to the God of heaven. Remember how David brought the Ark of the Covenant up and sat the Ark, which was a type of the throne of God where God's presence was. He sat the Ark on the, in the hill of Zion, built a tent for it, he turned his kingdom. He said, God, I know they, people have made me the king, and I'm giving you the, my kingdom. Here's the kingdom. I cast my crowns before your feet. So that the kingdom of David became the kingdom of God. And when he gave it to Solomon, he, he warned Solomon, this is the kingdom of God. You're ruling for God. You're making decisions for God. So you need to walk with God. And so that's why it says in 1 Chronicles 29 23 that Solomon then sat on the throne of the Lord as king in the place of David because that was the kingdom of God on earth. But then Solomon sinned. He got a thousand wives. Okay, that would be a sin as well as unwise. That was toward the end of his life. And so God brought in the Assyrians and judged them and carried them off into captivity and then he brought in the Babylonians and they, and they lost the kingdom of God on earth. But the prophets, all oh, the prophets, he said one day there will be a, one who will come, Isaiah 7, his name will be Emmanuel and he will sit on the throne of David. What a wonderful prediction from Isaiah. All of these prophets uh, prophets that speak of the coming king, they, they talk about how that this, the, uh, Isaiah 9, 6, unto us a child is born, a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, there's going to come one and the government will be on his shoulders. Oh, what a counselor he is. He's the mighty God. He's an everlasting father. And his government will just increase and continue to grow and grow. And he, it will be on the throne of David. In other words, there's a future for the throne of God in the earth that was lost. There's a future for it. The prophets came and predicted it. Well, how will we know when he comes? He will ride into town on a donkey. He will not come on the mighty horses of the Romans because his kingdom is different. Why would Jesus ride on a donkey? Well, in the Old Testament, it says in 1 Kings 1, 43, he says, Our Lord... King David has made Solomon king, and the king sent with him the priest and the prophet 
And they had him, Solomon, ride on the king's mule. See, David did not ride a horse. He rode a mule. And when he passed the kingdom on to his son Solomon, he gave him his mule. He's like a president. Mr. President, we have your transportation. We have your automobile sitting in front of the White House. And he's like, oh, good, good. My first ride in my new automobile for the president. And you go out there, and it is a Ford Pinto. Y'all don't know what a Ford Pinto is? (laughs) It is a what? Somebody help me. A what? Volkswagen? (laughs) A Chevrolet... Chevette. (laughs) Okay, so we get the picture. We get the picture here. Now, what is the meaning of this? Well, the meaning is that David and David's kingdom did not depend on mighty power of the flesh and instruments of war because... Deuteronomy 17 says, you may set a king over you, talking to Israel, he says, and one from among your brothers, um, but he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt to buy horses. Why? Horses were from Egypt. Exodus 15.1, remember when they came out of the Egyptian bondage and Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, I will sing to the Lord, he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider he threw into the sea, the Lord is my strength and song and he has become my salvation. God did not need the mighty instruments of war to defeat the Egyptians. He took all their horses and riders and chariots and threw them into the sea and the people of Israel crossed over on dry ground and did not have a single weapon in their hand or a horse at their disposal. They only needed God. They did not depend on all the military accoutrements. How did all them, uh, you know, at the end of when the Exodus and all the, 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 the first song in the Bible that is recorded is Exodus 15 too when they said, I will sing to the Lord the first song for he has triumphed. The horse and rider he's thrown in the sea. First song talks about God's victory over the horse and the rider. Egypt's all laying dead. All their soldiers are washing up. Their weapons are washing up on the seashore. And Moses is standing there thinking, wow, how'd them horses and chariots do for you when you're up against the mighty God of Israel? So David says in Psalm 20, Now I know the Lord saves his anointed. He'll answer him from his holy heaven and save. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we, the Davidic kingdom, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They all collapse and fall. We rise and stand upright. My dear friends, you may trust the God of heaven and the kingdom of God where Jesus sits enthroned at his right hand rather than Washington, D.C. The mightiest political group on earth is nothing compared to the King of Heaven. Amen. Amen. Anybody else want to shout?
Uh, no, really, though, really, aren't you glad we are not dependent and plugged in and needy for Washington's wisdom? Woe is us if that is so. They have a 10% approval rating because they can't get anything done. Foolishness of men. So the Davidic king took it on his shoulders that he would not trust in horses and chariots. So here's the king, here's King Jesus. And when he comes into town, he is not coming in with swords drawn and loud drums blaring and soldiers at the ready. He is coming in with nervous disciples riding, not just on a colt, but the foal of a donkey as he rides into town. In weakness is our strength. Then we not only see Jesus is our Lord and Jesus is our king and the kind of kingdom that he has come to bring, but one other thing, we see Jesus is our sacrifice. Because what did he come to do in Jerusalem? What, what is he going to do this week? this final week of his life. Do you know that Jesus, so far as I know, and, and somebody can correct me here if you, if you have information, I'd like to know so I quit saying this. But to my knowledge, Jesus never performed one miracle inside Jerusalem. He, when he came into Jerusalem, he didn't come to heal people. His primary goal in Jerusalem was not to help people. If you back up in, the, in Mark 11 and back up to chapter 10, he tells his disciples just before they go into town, he tells them why, what he's going to do there and why he's going. Chapter 10, verse 33. See, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him, and after three days, he will rise again. Because I want to tell you, Jesus is going to Jerusalem to be crucified for our sins. That's the Passover that we've all, the world, has ultimately needed. Jesus is going to take the place of all those lambs of all those years. He's going to take the place of that sacrificial system. He's going to replace the old covenant with the new covenant, and replace Judaism with worldwide Christianity, he has come to begin all over again with himself at the core. And he's worthy of it. They quote this verse in Mark 11. In Mark 11, 9, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If you go back to Psalm 18, verse 26, where, it, where it, they find that quote, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Psalm 18, 26. We've blessed you from the house of the Lord. You know what the next verse says in Psalm 18? They didn't quote this, but this is the next verse. Psalm 18, Psalm 118, verse 27. God is the Lord, which has showed us light, now bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. 
Psalm 118, from which they quote, is where you go into Jerusalem with your sacrifice, and there you worship. And Jesus says, I'm going to be the sacrifice. I'm the sacrifice. Bind the sacrifice with cords. Put the, the, the cross was like the altar, and the nails was like the cords. And that is what he has come to do. That is the meaning. And you, and you realize, you know what the four Gospels are about? A lot of people say, oh, it's about the life of Jesus. Actually, it's not. If you take the, just the Gospel of, Matthew, of uh, John, which has 22 chapters, you know where it starts talking about the final week of Jesus? In chapter 12. That's the final week. That's where it starts talking about his final week and all of it for 10 chapters. Uh, in other words, half the gospel of John is about the final week of his life. This, Mark has 16 chapters. Jesus is starting to go into Jerusalem from about Mark chapter 10, even chapter 9, following about half, at least a third of the four gospels are about the final week of his life, very little of his life. It's mostly about his final week. You know why? Because it's about his death. It's about his death. The gospel and the good news is not about Jesus as a moral example. It's about Jesus as the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world because we could never follow a moral example 100% in order to attain eternal life by good effort. But thankfully, Jesus, by the love of God and the mercy of His Son, He has come and took the place of our punishment and now we have been set free from a future of condemnation for which I delight. That's the best news you'll ever hear your whole life.